want to take a moment and just say thank you uh, to all of our veterans that are in the house and all represented by the family in all of our locations. Come on, let's thank our veterans. Thank you. You guys are amazing. Men and women sacrificing so much um, for our country. Thank you for, for what you do. You know, the Bible is uh, very familiar with uh, military time, war time, uh, very familiar with veterans. In fact, one of the key nations that is all throughout the Word of God is the Israelites. And the Israelites, uh, as they are carving out their civilization, as they're moving from a group of tribal vagabond mercenaries and becoming more of a legitimate uh, military stronghold, they're going to face opposition. And one of the largest oppositions that the Israelites faced was from the king of Syria. Uh, the Arameans, they're also called throughout the word of God. And the king of Syria wants to take the land because the land the Israelites have now been a part of, it is, it is fertile. It is good land. It is great for crops. It's great for hunting. It's great. You name it, it is the place you want, it's the place you want to be. So the king of Syria knows that Israelites are a force to be reckoned with, so he doesn't want to go into war with them alone. So he begins to send some messages out to some other kingdoms, and he begins to create an allied force. But it's not an allied force of the king of Syria and three enemies. It's not eight allies. It's actually 32 allies that the king of Syria gathers, 32 different nations that come up against the Israelites. And when they have this battle... Something unbelievable, something supernatural happens. The Israelites, although they are unbelievably outnumbered, they conquer all 32. They, they defeat the 32 nations. And those 32 nations have to lick their wounds and retreat and go back to where they came from. Those nations and those kings, they wait 12 months. They regroup. They heal. They recruit more soldiers and we pick up the story 12 months later in 1 Kings chapter 20. And here's what happens. The Syrian military advisors, they went to their king and they explained. Of course, they did have some explaining to do. How does 32 of us not be able to beat the Israelites? And they say, king, before you, you know, off with, off with our head, us, uh, we want to tell you what happened. And here they go to explain what they think went wrong at the last battle. Okay, the Syrian military advisors say, Israel's gods are gods of the hills. And last time, duh, we fought them in the hills. Now that's why they defeated us. So the strategists have this idea. They say, what if, what if we fight them in the valleys where they are weak? We will defeat them there, we got this, and they chest bump each other. And so sure enough, they think it's a good idea. Yeah, their gods are just the gods of the hills. And so what happens next? The Syrian forces, they gather together, and they covered the whole countryside. Listen to this. The Israelites looked like two little flocks of goats. Tiny little, it was a drone coverage. They had drones back then, apparently. And they were just over the hill, 
over the valleys, over the countryside. They didn't just fight them in the hills. They could see that the Israelites looked so small and puny and easily defeated. But God has the last word in our battles. And so God sends a message, even though it looks bleak. God sends a message to the prophet, and the prophet goes and talks to Israel about the, in, the, the upcoming battle that they're about to face. And here's what God says. The prophet says, here's what God says. Because the Syrians think that I am only the God of the hills and not that I am the God of the valleys. I'm going to give you victory over this huge army so everyone will know that I am the Lord. And I'm here to tell you today, he is the God of your hills and the God of your valleys too. In this life, we do not hop, skip, and a jump from one mountain to the next. It is not all slow motion, Julie Andrews, sound of music, run through Swedish fields, Netherland fields, wherever that is. There's going to be hard times ahead. And if you're taking notes on our worship guide or on the Timber Creek app, write this down. Most of life, most of it, is not lived on mountaintops. Most of life is not built, lived on mountaintops. Now, they get a lot of accolades and they get a lot of press. Like, nobody's like doing a CNN special on somebody who was able to slide down a valley. But for the person who was able to climb and conquer Everest, that tends to get a little more airtime. On Everest, they're taking selfies and pictures and planting their feet. And yeah, and it's not like they're in the valleys like, hey, woo, look at me, I did this. Valleys don't get that much Attention, but valleys are a critical part of life. And you have to understand that valleys aren't a punishment of God for something you did wrong. You don't get a valley because you sinned. You get valleys in your life because you are a human being. Humanity goes through valleys. Man, when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior... I started singing songs like, you are good, you're good, you're so good, but I don't feel very good, and I've got this valley, and this just happened, and I thought that Jesus was going to turn all this around. Well, you, you don't understand the scope of the Word of God. The whole Word of God is a story about people trying to find God themselves, but they couldn't, and so Jesus makes himself very findable, and he finds us where we are. And he walks with us no matter what the terrain looks like. Valleys are a part of life. They're not in your notes, but you might want to write some of these thoughts down. Valleys are inevitable. Inevitable. Good Christian. I mean, sinner. Last night you spent three hours praying. Or last night you spent three hours. And now me even doing that, you're going, oh, oh. Do you know that God will lead you into valleys? It's not just an enemy tactic. Um, when the Israelites come out of Egypt, they had been 400 years in slavery. You want to talk about developing an identity when your dad and your granddad and your great-granddad and your great-great-granddad, I was a slave, you're a slave, we'll always be slaves, and for 400 years, that's all you know. 
even though you can be exodus out of Egypt, that slave mentality is still in you. How many people are right now walking, saved by grace? You're saved by faith through grace of God. It's not by your works because you can't boast about it, but you're still not living free. So you can go to heaven, but you're not living free on this earth. Because you still got some habits and hang-ups and some hold-ups. Just this last weekend, we had something that I believe is a critical piece to the health of Timber Creek Church. We had our Encounter God weekend. And a hundred people went to our Encounter God experience. And it's all designed to not just see people that are saved stay saved. That's great. But we want to see people know God, find freedom from what's holding them back, discover a new purpose and identity in Him. And then through that, be a part of what He wants to do in this world and through us to this world but here's what he says you know in the book of Deuteronomy the promised land you're about to enter is a land of hills and what all locations what yeah the promised land they were leaving Egypt as slaves they were going through the wilderness and they were going to take the promised land but the promised land wasn't all daisies and buttercups it was going to have valleys and battles and struggles too valleys are inevitable Valleys next are impartial. They're, they're, they're impartial. They're no respecter of persons. They don't look at your resume. Valleys don't sit there and thump, uh, thumb through your uh, resume saying, oh, well, they've, got, they've lived a pretty good life. We won't, we won't interfere with their life. Valleys are impartial. Uh, Psalm 34, the good man does not escape all troubles. He has them too. But the Lord helps him in each and every one. And notice that it doesn't say help them out of each and every one. But he helps them in each and every one. God didn't just help you when you got out of it. God is helping you when you're in it. So with the rest of the time we have, I want to talk about some significant valleys in the Bible. There, there are dozens. I'm only going to talk about a handful of them. But we're going to look at these actual geographic locations while also considering some of the metaphorical implications of what these valleys represent for us in 2019. And so take some notes, learn some new words, some new geography today. Let's talk about the very first valley. It's the Valley of Siddim. Siddim. It's in Genesis 14, and it's, this, it's another epic battle. It is this, this epic battle royale. And it unfolds in Genesis chapter 14. The four kings of Shinar, which is Babylon, they went to war against the five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, and three other cities. So five kings against four kings, nine kingdoms in this battle royale. And here's how it went down. See what had, hap See what had happened was <laughs> the five kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, which is now the Dead Sea. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you should. It will radically change the way you look at the Bible. It just, it, it's, it's the Bible in 3D. It, it's, it's the Bible in 3D. Like, like uh, we, we want, I've been saying it for years, but bless God, we're going, we're going to organize some trips to Israel. Anybody want to go to Israel with me? Let's go to Israel. All right. Okay, you got to pay for it, but we're going to go. Like, oh, yeah, I'll go. All right, you won't pay for it. But, but uh, been to the Dead Sea. You, you float in the, you can't even sink in the Dead Sea. I mean, you can drown in it, you can put your face in it and die, but, but you can't sink in the Dead Sea. It's so thick with salt. And this valley later turned into this, into the Dead Sea. Now, for 12 years, 
part of those kingdoms, the Sodom, Gomorrah, and the three other cities, they had been oppressed by other kingdoms. And so in the 13th year, they rebelled. So for an entire year, the 13th year, they rebelled against the other uh, four kingdoms. And they said, no more taxation without representation. And they were like, they were, they were, don't tread on me. And, 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 and they were just, they were going against the other kingdoms for one year, the 13th year. And it was a good year and things were looking good. But in the 14th year, their oppressor recruited his allies to team up and reconquer the land. So the nine armies fought in the valley of Siddam. Now, this valley, probably not the best place to choose to fight a battle royale. The valley was full of sticky Tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to run away, they were retreating. And notice it wasn't the soldiers. Notice it was the leaders. When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to run away from the battle, what happened? They slipped and fell and got stuck in the pits. So the invaders plundered the cities and they took everything they had. Can you, can you imagine it? They're stuck in the tar pits. And after they've invaded and plundered everything, they just come back, you know, and they taunt them. We're taunting you. Like, it's, it's like Monty Python all over again. And they're just stuck in the, in the pits. And they die. They die. Happy ending. <laughs> Bad ending. Whatever. Let me talk to you about the Valley of Siddam. Here's what it represents. Write it down. It represents failure. Every single one of us have been, are in, are going to go through a failure. Failures are impartial. Failures are inevitable. They are valleys. Um, let, let, let's look back at the scripture, Genesis 14. Now, this valley was full of sticky tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to run away from the battle, they slipped and they fell and they got stuck in the pits. Do you see the progression of failure? Do you see the progression? Let me, let me highlight it in a different way. The kings, they run away. And while they're running away, they slip. And when they slip, they fell. And when they fell, they got stuck. And this is the experience that a lot of us go through. Most of us don't stop fighting a valley, fighting a battle in a valley, and just look for a tar pit and say, cowabunga. It's a slow progression. It starts with us regretting we even got into this situation, turning beginning to run away, and then when we're running away, our feet fail us because we're on the wrong road, and we slip. And sometimes we can slip, and we get back up, and we, and we, we figure it out, and maybe we turn back around, or, or, or we slip again. And then what we do is when that cycle becomes a pretty vicious cycle of, of running away and slipping and falling to the point where we lose our strength, and we get, and we get stuck. Man, why, how did I find myself here? across the table with attorneys signing divorce papers. It's because there is a progression of valleys. Um, here's another valley. The Valley of Eshkol. The Valley of Eshkol. This valley is in Numbers 13. And uh, it is a valley that happened before Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities uh, this happened before this, and what, what happens, pardon me, it happened before the Israelites and the 32 nations. In this battle, uh, it's not really even a battle, it's just a valley. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. They're, they've crossed the Red Sea. They've been guided by God, and they come to the edge of the promised land. And what they want to do is they want to they start a reconnaissance mission and so they send a representative of every tribe, of the 12 tribes, and they send this group of, of 12 
men on a reconnaissance mission across enemy lines to go and spy out the land. Because before they start marching all the way in, they want to know, are there any booby traps? Is there any enemy forces up close? What are we getting ourselves into? Let's scout it. Let's consider it before we say charge. And so here's what happens. The spies came to the valley of Eshcol. And the fruit, the fruit in that promised land was so abundant that they cut off a grape branch which had a giant cluster of grapes on it. But it was so large and heavy that it took two men to carry it back on a pole between them. All right, this ain't no grapes from Brookshire Brothers or Walmart, all right? They also brought samples of the beautiful pomegranates and figs. In other words, there was all kinds of different fruit. Good, goodness, the land was fertile. They actually took a picture back then of one of the things. It was amazing. It's amazing what they found in the promised land. I didn't even know they had Birkenstocks back then. Just kidding. That's not a real picture. This is a real picture. And that is actually a cluster of grapes from Israel. Unbelievable that in the middle of a dry wasteland, arid desert, it's why there's so much tension in the Middle East. Uh, because it's, it's an unbelievable fertile area, but it's also a very spiritual area. Very spiritual. Lots of, lots of tension there. So when those 12 spies come back, this was their report to Moses. Okay, it is indeed. Whoa. A magnificent country, rich and fertile. You should have seen the watermelon. And here's some fruit as proof. They walk out with the pole. And it's this massive cluster of grapes. But, and this is a big old but. Big old butts all through the Bible, everybody. But the people living there are powerful and stronger than we are. And they look like giants to us. And in our own eyes, we felt as small as grasshoppers next to them. The Valley of Eshcol. This represents the Valley of Fear. The Valley of Fear. Where you're face to face with something that seems so much bigger than you. And you don't know how to approach it. Let's look at that scripture again in Numbers 13. The people living there are powerful and stronger than we are. And they look like giants to us. And in our own eyes, do you hear them dripping with insecurity? Do you hear them dripping with fear? Dripping with, oh, what do we do? And yet, they had just come from the God of creation showing the Egyptians Ten different ways how he was going to provide for them. You know, when he sent those supernatural activities of those plagues on Egypt, it was locusts and frogs, and it was water to blood and several different gnats, just, just like gnats. The, the, the plague is in my house right now, everybody. Like, we got gnats in the house. Anyway... But here's the deal. A lot of people don't realize those ten plagues are actually representative of ten different false gods the Egyptians were following. And so God, the creator, is going to say, oh, you're going to trust in the water of the Nile. Well, let me just kind of change that. Oh, you're going to bow down to frogs. Bud. Wise. Yeah, thank you. 
okay, I'll, oh, you're going to trust in frogs? I'm going to send you all the frogs. Let's see if, you, let's see if you're going to bow to him, down to him now. And those same Israelites that saw the hand of God, how quickly, li- listen to me, don't get it twisted. So many people say, if I could just see a miracle today, if I could just see a miracle, then I would trust in God. Lazarus was dead for four days. He's resurrected. And it was then, when you read the scripture in John, it was then many leaders decided, we got to kill this guy. Now you would think, I saw the dead raised. He is God. But people just choose to see what they want to see. And these guys are choosing to see what they wanted to see. And they were dealing with their own insecurities, their own eyes. Listen, faith isn't about what you see. Faith isn't about what you see. Faith is about believing in evidence that can't be seen. So it's not about seeing with your eyes. It's about seeing with your heart. It's not eyesight. It's insight on what God wants to do. You may want to write this down. Twelve spies. They all saw the same thing. They all went to the same place. They all saw the pomegranates and the figs and the clusters of grapes. Ten All they could see were obstacles. But there were two. What they saw was opportunity. Guess what? Both were right. It's why one person can have this outlook on life in the middle of an unbelievable valley. And someone over here is cursing God and saying, how could God let this happen? Because many times we can let the obstacle of the valley define God define us, define our future, define our lives. And God wants to say there's opportunity in those valleys. It can just be a valley and all you can see is obstacles or what are the opportunities that God is creating in those moments of valleys? We have the next valley, the Valley of Elah. Now this is probably, uh, whether you grew up in church or not, this is probably one of the more popular valleys that you've you've heard of it's in first samuel 17 and and it's it's where the the battle wasn't very long but the battle between goliath and david happened Um, and we read that saul and the israelites they had finally become a nation saul was their first king they camped in the valley of elah and they drew up battle plans to fight the philistines what's their plan you go here i'll go here you zig i'll zag We'll get them from behind. We'll flank them here, and then we got them. They're drawing up all kinds of battle plans. But the Philistines and the Israelites, they each stood their ground shouting and taunting each other from opposite hills. Your mama's so fat. Well, your mama's so ugly. Your mama's so poor. Well, your mama, what? (laughs) Taunting each other from opposite hills with the Valley of Elah between them. And now the Philistine army had a giant champion fighter named Goliath. Who was about nine feet tall. And when Saul and the Israelites saw this, they were terrified. And they were deeply shaken. Anybody ever faced a giant in your life? Um, Metaphorical or real? (laughs) When I was in kindergarten, I faced a giant on the wrestling mat. It's me. It's a kindergartner. You know what ticks me off? You know what ticks me off, everybody? My parents, man, I love them, but they tick me off. This guy's got a singlet on, representing his, representing his school or whatever. He's got matching tube socks. 
cool wrestling shoes. I look like I just came from an Easter egg hunt. I'm not showing you this picture because it has a good, a good ending. I'm showing it to you. I got beat. I got beat. Made me mad. I'm like, had I just been wearing a singlet, Mom? If you just would have given me some cool headgear. I know what it's like to face some, some challenges. Valley of Eli represents conflict in our lives. And conflict isn't... Uh, isn't Moral. It's amoral. In other words, it's, it's not good or bad. Conflict is like a brick. You can build incredible structures. Or you can bust out plate glass windows with a brick. How you see conflict and how you use conflict, how you leverage conflict in a positive, healthy, God-honoring way determines how you use that tool. And let me show you the scripture again. We just read it, but look at these keywords. The Philistines and Israelites each stood their ground, shouting and taunting each other from opposite hills with the valley of Elah between them. Doesn't that sound like if you change, let me, I'm, here's what I'm going to do, okay? I'm just going to, I'm going to swap a couple words, just a, just, just, just a couple words, and see if it makes sense to you, and see if you see this conflict in a little bit different way. The husband and wife each stood their ground, shouting and taunting each other from opposite hills with the valley of conflict between them. Like, you're in the valley of Elah. Like, I mean, Jan and I have never been in the valley of Elah. No, that's called Thursdays. <laughs> like, everybody's got conflict. Conflict happens in you because your flesh wants to do one thing and your spirit says, all oh, you will not be doing that. Your, your, your mind, your will, and your emotions are saying one thing, and the word of God is saying another. you got conflict in you. you got conflict around you, and you've got a sibling rivalry. Not even you, but with your brother and your sister. You've got family conflict, and Thanksgiving's coming up, and you're already beginning to swallow hard and trying to think, how am I going to shift gears? What am I going to say? How am I going to light the house on fire for all of us just to go to our separate hotels? Like, because family is in town. And then you got conflict between you where you are struggling with something like a husband and a wife or like a brother and sister or, li or like a boss or a manager or, or you, you name it. Conflict is in all of us and, and it can be a valley we have to walk through and how you deal with it and how you see it will affect your future. Number four, the valley of Baca. Baca. Now this valley of Baca is a significant valley because when you were... A Jew, a Jew, a God-fearing, God-honoring, festival-following Jew, every year during the festivals, you would have to make the pilgrimage into Jerusalem to the temple, and, and you, would, you would do your festivals and sacrifice, do the sacrifices and all those things. And the pilgrimage involved going through the Valley of Baca. In Psalm 84, David says it, says it like this. He knows Jerusalem all too well. He's the one who turned Jerusalem into Jerusalem. It was an existing city called Jebus, and it was a Jebusite stronghold, and David uh, conquered that and named it Jerusalem. By the way, next year, I'm excited, and uh, starting Super Bowl Sunday, my, my plan is I'm going to do a series that's a, a deep dive into the life of David, the, the life and leadership, the mountaintops and the valley lows. Extremely high highs, unbelievably low lows. And we're going to unpack, unpack spiritual truths and leadership qualities in one of the greatest characters in the Bible. So 
mark your calendar. And if you are like the average American, uh, you only attend 38% of the Sundays in a year, so I'll see you then. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Church attendance has gone down so, so much in America over the last decade. It's, it, it's unreal. But God's still reaching people. In fact, we've grown by almost 1,000 people in four years. Whoa. God's up to something big here. Crazy. Those numbers only matter because those numbers represent souls. They only matter because they represent souls. All right, here's what the psalmist says. Blessed are those whose strength comes from the Lord. Not whose strength comes from their portfolio. Not whose strength comes for, from their ability to pick them up from themselves from their bootstraps. Not person who's self-made. Blessed are those whose strength comes from the Lord. As they pass through the valley of Baca... They make it a place of springs. That's significant. And the autumn rains cover it with pools. So a place that's barren, it's a wasteland. You go through it. It's arid desert. It's a dry climate. They go through it, and then they go from strength to strength, growing until each appears before God in Zion. The Valley of Baca, here's what it represents. Literally, it means the Valley of Weeping. So we get a little bit better picture of how the valley of Baca becomes springs. Some of those springs may be the goodness of God. Others of those springs may be the reality that as they're walking through the valley of Baca, they're, they're weeping. And how that weeping matters. Um, what makes you cry? What makes you cry? Nothing. Nothing makes me cry. Um, I want to invite you to find something that you would weep over. Find something that would break your heart. It's where the only response is weeping. William Booth started the Salvation Army. It started in England, and they began to send missionaries to the United States to start the Salvation Army. And the story goes that one of the missionaries came over, and it was hard ground to till. And so that missionary sent a letter back over to William Booth and said, I've tried everything. I've tried services. I've tried outreaches. I've tried music. I've tried preaching on street corners. I've tried preaching in auditoriums. I've tried presenting the gospel here, there, everywhere, and they just won't receive the gospel. I've tried it all. I don't know what to do. And William Booth sent a letter back with only two words. And the words were, try weeping. There's something about being broken before the Lord about your family, about your kids, about your grandbabies, about your prodigal son, about your prodigal granddaughter. There's something about weeping unto God over those things. You know what I want to be? I want to be a church that weeps over lost people, that, that weeps over hurting people that are in their own valley of grief, their own valley of woundedness, their own valley of turmoil. Just this last week, Janet was working up in Houston with her job, and she was on a major thoroughfare, six-lane highway. All of a sudden, like just in a matter of moments, the, the, the highway backed up, and that's typical in Houston, but it wasn't rush hour. And as they inched closer, Janet was shocked. She saw it just as she was passing 
She was shocked to see that there was a car stopped and in one of the middle lanes, there was a man on his knees on a six-lane highway with his hands out saying, Just run me over! Just kill me! He wasn't disheveled. He was in nice clothes, shaved, groomed. But he was wounded, hurting, no understanding of what he had gone through. If he was in all of his mental capacities or if he was so broken that this is the only response he knew to do. And I want us to be the kind of church and the kind of people that really believes empty seats are a big deal. But, but way beyond just empty seats are a big deal and we would bring them in and invite them in, but that we would go out. And next year, part of my passion that I believe God's planted in here for 2020 is that we would not just be inviters, but we would be investors outside these four walls. We wanna, I, wanna, I wanna teach everybody how to give a 30 second gospel message with your life. How do you can tell your story to people? When I was at the prison on Wednesday at Die Ball, I loved this moment. We were having water baptisms, and one guy went, went down. His name was Stephen, and uh, another guy jumped up. After, after he went up, one of the other inmates said, That's my celly! That's my celly! He wasn't talking about his celly, call me on the celly. He was talking about his... His neighbor in his cell, his roommate. And I loved it. I love that passion. You know what we say around here? You got to invite Fran to church, friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. I got a text in between services saying, you got to change it to France. You got to invite France to church. Friends, relatives, associates, neighbors. Sellies. Now the E might be harder. Enemies. Oh, <laughs> Oh, I love you so much. You know what I'm going to do to get back at you? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> do you know what? I grew up so small. I was bullied as a kid up through middle school and even high school. Um, I was blind in my left eye, blind since birth. Optic nerve didn't develop. And with that came <laughs> some insecurities. Would I be picked on the dodgeball playground? Well, I have friends. When I talk about small, I mean growth hormone deficiency, I, I was sixth grade, three foot six, 67 pounds. On my 13th, my teenager birthday, my mom and dad brought four of my friends and me and my family to a Six Flags, a Worlds of Fun. And the, la the last ride, the Timberwolf. That's why we named this Timber Creek Church after this experience. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. Because it was a wolf in my life, but now it's become a creek of everlasting life. Anyway, no, I'm just, that is totally wrong, okay? The Timberwolf, all my friends got on, and the dude, we'll call him Dustin, because that was his name, and I remember him. Dustin brought the, the ruler of death for anybody that's short. Anybody ever experienced that? Put it up there. There was space between. I mean, I'm doing the whole thing. I'm spiking my hair up like this. This was so cool. This was back in the day where you had it shaved here, spiked here, and a sweet rat tail. But my parents wouldn't let me get the rat tail. They said, you'll be on the street if, if you try and start growing one of those out. So, um, 
what am I even talking about? <laughs> I didn't get to ride. It built some insecurities in me. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe if I'm the funny one. Um, so that's how I dealt with some insecurities. Now, God can use things that are wounds in your life to actually become tools for his glory. And I like to try not to make church boring. I think that church ought not be boring. And we like to laugh in this church. And I think that far too many people don't laugh near enough. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. And laughter is good like a medicine. And so I want us to have moments where we're whew, doing some business with God. And other moments where we just laugh and we just have a good time. Because that's God honoring. But I can tell you, I've had my insecurities and I've had my moments I've had my struggles. I've had my wounds. They don't have to define you. You can walk through those valleys. These are the valleys we've talked about today. Failure, fear, conflict, weeping. Where are you? Are you in one of these valleys today? Have you gone through one and you're so thankful? Are you getting ready to go through one and you don't even know? Guess what? Valleys are not only inevitable and impartial, they are unpredictable. I mean, I wish we could wake up and say, hey, 6 o'clock tonight is when that valley starts. But they hit us. They hit us. So you got to remember this. Remember this when you're going through a valley. Write these down. It's temporary, everybody. There's no eternal valley. It's temporary. Look, look, look at the fo focus on the scripture. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Val valleys are not meant to just be avoided if you can help it because you can't avoid every valley, but what you can do is walk through every valley. You can walk through them. It's temporary. It doesn't last forever. Through the valley. You know what else? It's a shadow. It's the valley of a shadow of death. Now don't get me wrong, shadows can be scary. Shadows can cause you to fear. Shadows can, can, can cause you to pull the covers up over your nose and not want to face life because the shadows feel so real. But shadows are just shadows. You know the difference between the shadow of death and death? It's like a truck. Would you rather get ran over by a truck or ran over by a shadow of a truck? And the reason why it's a shadow and not the real thing, is because Jesus conquered death on the cross. And even though we die, look, you and I, we got dirt suits. We got dirt suits. And this dirt will someday crash. This dirt fails us. This, this body is a temporary dwelling place, but you have something in you that is eternal. It's your soul. And what we get saved, we don't get... We don't just get the flesh saved. The flesh comes into control of the spirit. But the spirit, the soul, that's what surrenders to Jesus. And our soul lives forever. It's a shadow. Jesus conquered it on the cross. So you and I, even though we may someday die on this earth, we still have a future with him. You know what else? I'm not alone in the valley. I'm not alone in the valley. Did you notice the transition that this psalm takes? I talked earlier about praise and worship. Praise is what we declare. 
Praise, we're talking to each other. When we do a worship service, we've got fast songs, and usually they're praise. We're telling one another around us when we're singing, God is good, I ran out of that grave, I'm talking to you. Uh, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We're communicating the goodness of God out here. But then it begins to shift. We, we try to design the worship expression to be praise, and we got to do that together. we got to do that together. You, uh, you can't praise without me, actually. We praise together. Now, worship is a single thing. Worship is an individual thing. And even though we're gathered corporately, when we begin to focus that, that, that worship into directly talking to God, we declare him, and then we talk to him. There's moments of worship. Do you know this psalm is full of praise and worship? Listen to the words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. I'm declaring. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But when I get into the valley, it gets real personal. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. God is not meant for you to just experience him in the context of corporate worship. He is not a philosophy for you to follow. He is a person for you to know. And he wants to be personal with you. You are not alone. I am not alone. You know what else? Fruit grows in a valley. Out of all the big mountains that are touted as ones worthy to climb, not a whole lot of fruit grows on those mountaintops. In fact, they look pretty dry. The the view, I mean, you can't beat the view, but the mountaintops are far and few. But the fruit that grows in valleys. Paul says it like this. Our present troubles are quite small, and they won't last very long. They seem like they're lasting long. They seem like big old valleys. Our present troubles are quite small, and they won't last very long. Yet, here's what they're doing. They are producing in us. Do you hear the agriculture? Do you hear the fruit that's growing in these moments? It's producing in us an eternal glory that will last forever. Valleys are temporary. The fruit that can grow in them is everlasting. And it's greater than anything we can imagine. Can you look at me in the eyes, all locations? After one minute in heaven, I promise you, you will look at every single thing you went through on this life, on this earth, through that hurt, that was painful, that you got through, or maybe you felt like you were in the middle of it. I want to tell you, in one minute in heaven, it's face to face with the Son of the living God, worshiping for eternity, you'll say, whoa, it was so worth it. And you don't have to wait for heaven to know that he is with you. I want to close with one last valley. And one last valley, we find it in the book of Joel. Joel's one of those awesome books you could read this afternoon. It's so short, you could read it like five minutes, and then you just put it on Facebook. I read a whole book of the Bible today. (laughs) Hashtag blessed, hashtag church, hashtag Sunday, hashtag Sabbath. 
<laughs> Tag me in that if you do that, okay? <laughs> Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Here's what Joel says, and, and, and it's these people that are in the tension between, you know, where, you know where these people are? They're halfway through the valley. And when you get halfway through a valley, it really feels like I can't go back, but it's so far I can't keep going. And many people, like the gentleman in the middle of those six lanes, they just sit down in the valley. And they miss out on everything happening. God wants to take you through the valley. But this is the final valley. Joel says it like this. Multitudes. Yes, multitudes. Multitudes are in the valley of decision. For the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So listen to me now. You got a choice to make. Go it alone. Sit down and just deal with it. Or set your heart to worship the almighty shepherd who knows who we are better than we know ourselves, who has been preparing you all this passage. He's helped you to lie down to get the food you need, to get the water that'll quench you because maybe the valley is dry like the valley of Baca. He has restored your soul and he's leading you in the right paths. And even the right path is going to have valleys. But the shepherd is saying, come on, come on, let's go. And he doesn't push you. He doesn't drive you like a, like a rancher drives cattle. He leads you and you follow. Don't quit following. Make the decision. No matter where I am or what I've gone through or what is in the horizon, I will know you're with me and I will go through it with you. Let's pray. All campuses with your eyes closed, heads bowed. Our prison venue pastors are joining me up front. Somebody there at the Nacogdoches location. You're here today in the sound of my voice. You're watching online, but you are in a valley. This is your decision moment. And so I wanna to talk to two groups here. If maybe you're in a valley of fear or failure or conflict or weeping and hurt and woundedness, if that's you, but today you wanna to declare, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall, I'm going to follow. He is going to lead me no matter what this valley, no matter what comes my way. I'm declaring today, I'm going to follow you. I'm deciding to follow Jesus through this valley. If that's you, would you put a hand to heaven? Jesus wants to stretch down and grab your hand right in this moment and say, you're not alone. Shadows don't even exist without light. I am the light of the world. There's not even a shadow that would exist if the light wasn't close by. And I'm going to shine through the dark moments. And you may be a follower of Christ with your hand up and you're going, through a con you're going through a valley in your marriage. And you're going through a valley of your finances. You're going a valley through your secret struggle that nobody else knows but you. I want you to know that Jesus is not mad at you but he loves you so much that he would want you to decide today to walk with him through this valley and you in your own words would say Jesus I'm following you I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna follow you through this thank you Lord 
Guide me. Give me strength. Strengthen me from strength to strength. From day to day, I trust in you. You can put your hands down with those of you here, though, and your valley of decision is you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You've never invited him to guide you, to be your shepherd that we've been talking about. Today, you can decide for it to be the day you put Jesus in the center of your life. Does it mean it's the day that you figure everything out? No. The day that you do right from here on out? <laughs> no. But it can be the day you decide, I am not going to be the God of my own life. I'm going to let God be the God of my life. And I want to surrender to him today at all locations. If for the first time or the first time in a long time, you need to surrender to the good shepherd with no hesitation right now. Put a hand up in the air. Just put a hand up in the air. I need to respond to Jesus today. Respond to him. Don't respond to your pastor. Respond to Jesus today. I put a hand up in the air today. You can put them down. And now you would pray in your own words, Jesus, would you save me? Sin separates me from you. The, the, the stuff that gets in my life and takes the place of you. I, would you wash all that away and give me a fresh start and I want to walk with you and you walk with me and I want to understand you as my shepherd and I surrender to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.